I love about doing RUF is I love campus ministry. I love college students. Um, and uh, part of what I love about doing this is we get to do series like we're doing. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we're doing a series called Relationships Reimagined. And basically what we're doing is we're, we're asking the question, what does the Bible have to say about all the different relationships that we have? Um, if you've been with us, we've kind of said there are four main types of relationships that God has given to us. He's given us a relationship with himself. He's given us a relationship with one another. He's given us a relationship with places. And we're going to talk about culture and what does it mean to, to live in this culture. And then he's given us a relationship with things, with food and with uh, money and, and sex. And we're going to talk about those things. But tonight is kind of fun. We're entering the, into the part of the series where we're talking about what does the Bible have to say and what does Jesus have to say about the way we relate to one another. And so for the next five weeks, just so you have like a, a map of where we're going for my control freaks. Tonight we're starting with friendship. Um, next week we're talking about dating. Uh, then we're doing marriage, then we're doing sex, and then we're doing singleness, as I think is the order we're doing. But tonight we're talking about friendship. What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to have friends? What, is it, what does it mean? Um, and to do this, we're using Beyonce songs. And here's the Beyonce song for tonight. Um, she has a song called I'm Scared of Lonely. She says this. She says, I'm scared of lonely, and I'm scared of being the only shadow I see along a wall. And I'm scared of the only heartbeat I hear beating is my own, and I'm scared of being alone, and I can't seem to breathe. I'm scared of being lonely. And what's interesting is I think Beyonce's hitting on something that I think is really profound when we come to talk about friendship that we've got to sort of say at the beginning, and that's this, that all of us, part of what it means to be be a human being is kind of, you have two longings. You have a longing that we've said over and over for for someone to know you, to know your story, To know, I had a friend this week who said we're all like books. We have a spine and a story. And and we long to be known, but we we long more than to be known. We long not just for someone to know us, but we long for someone to look at us and know us and love us. And say, "I'm, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm not going anywhere. So we have these deep longings for friends. Because that's what a friend is. Someone who knows you and loves you. And yet, we are paralyzed in fear. We're afraid that if someone really knows us... They won't love us. We're afraid that if someone really knows us, really, really knows us, knows our heart, knows our soul, that they'll run the other direction. Um, And so we're going to talk about this idea of friendship. What does it mean? And the passage I want to look at, if you brought a Bible and you have it in your handout, is from 1 Samuel 18. And I think this is one of the sweetest pictures of friendship that I know of in Scripture, and I, I love it. And it's the friendship between King David and Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. And if you know the Old Testament at all, you know that Saul was the king that preceded David. And so 1 Samuel 18, 1-5 is just a story about how kind of they became friends. And I want to read it for us. I'm reading from the ESV. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Notice it says it twice. And Jonathan, this is interesting, we're going to talk about it. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into what I want to talk about, about friendship. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we confess that we, we need you. 
We not only need you to be our Savior, but we need you to be the one who pours out your Spirit without measure. Lord, you say to us in your word that um, the natural man cannot understand the things of God apart from the Spirit. And Jesus, we ask tonight um, that, that you would pour out your Spirit not only on me, the speaker, that you might speak through me, through your words, but that you would pour out your Spirit on everyone listening, that our hearts might be good soil, that the truth of your word, especially as, as what it means to be a friend, that you would implant and, and, and deeply plant the truth of your word in our hearts, that it might grow in ways that bring life not only to us, but bring life to our friends. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I'm a pretty big Ryan Gosling fan. Um, if you've ever followed me on Twitter, you know this is true. And, um, and one of my favorite Ryan Gosling movies is, is one of his more obscure ones. It's called Lars and the Real Girl. Some of you have seen it, some of you haven't. It's on Netflix. It's, it's worth watching. It's his weirdest movie that I've ever seen. Um, it's not as depressing as Half Nelson if you're into the Ryan Gosling's deep cuts, not just his greatest hits. Like The Notebook, that's great. You know, Drive is good. But let's go with the Ryan Gosling deep cuts. Uh, Lars and the Real Girl is one of the deep cuts. And the story is basically this. Here is Ryan Gosling, and he plays this uh, very introverted, very socially awkward young man in this, in this community. And he does this really weird thing where he's longing for relationship. And in the name of relationship, in the name of having someone to touch and hold, he orders this sex doll from online. And it's a real, one of those real, like not just an inflatable sex doll, but like a real, like a, like made out of, you know, some sort of, you know, uh, synthetic material that, uh, some, you know, the kind of sex, you guys know about sex dolls, right? <laughs> I'm like talking about like I'm an expert. Uh, I'm not an expert, but I have seen the movie. And uh, so, but it's one of those very realistic ones. He orders her in the mail, and, and all, all the time he lives right next, to, next door to his brother and his wife. And his brother and his wife are, are watching this happen, and they, they figure out that, that here is Ryan Gosling's character, Lars. And he, the interesting thing is he doesn't order the sex doll for sex. He orders the sex doll for, for companionship. To, to have someone he feels like he can pour out his heart to, to have someone he feels like he can hang out with. So what he does throughout the movie is he takes her, he has a wheelchair, and he takes her around. He dresses her. He bathes her, he, he, put, he brushes her hair. And it's a beautiful picture of community, actually, because the community, instead of being like, uh, look at the weird guy, let's avoid him, they embrace him. They treat Bianca like she's real, too, in the name of loving him. But when I watch that movie, I think that is the picture of you and I with friendship. Is on the one hand, we are desperate for it. So desperate that we do desperate things, which is... Why we do weird things on Facebook and Twitter and so we Facebook stalk. We do weird things. But on the other hand, we're terrified of it. We're terrified of real face-to-face interaction and conversation. For someone to peer into the depths of my soul and know me. For someone to peer into the depths of your soul and know you. But that's the tension, isn't it? That we are desperate for it and yet we're afraid of it. So what in the world does 1 Samuel 18 have to say to it? Well, there are four things I want you to see from this passage talking about friendship. And, and tonight I'm trying to fit a lot in because I feel like this is my one shot. So bear with me. The four things I want to look at thinking about friendship. First, we're talking about the purpose of friendship. Why do you need friends? Second, we're talking about the pattern of friendship. How does it happen? When does it happen? Third, we're going to talk about the problem of friendship. Basically why you're a sucky friend and I am too. And then fourthly, we're talking about the power, really the power for friendship. 
What's the secret to being a good friend? So that's the four things. So the purpose, the pattern, uh, the problem, and the power. So first, stick with me for a second about the purpose. Why do you need friends? What's fascinating about 1 Samuel 18 is that before God gives David the kingdom, he gives him a friend. Why? Because he knows David will never be ready for the kingdom. David will never be the kind of king that he could be without friends. You need friends. I need friends. Not just Facebook friends. Friends that know my story. They've read, if I'm a book, a spine and a story, they know my story from page 1 to page 299. I don't know, whatever page it is. They know my whole story. You need you need it. And what I'm trying to get you of is it's not just nice. It's not just, an, it's not just optional. It's something you desperately need if you're ever going to be the kind of human being you could possibly be. The way I think about it is if you're a mashed potatoes uh, fan, you know, if you're a, a, my, my wife's favorite meal, I'm a fried chicken man. My wife's favorite meal, her family is from the Midwest. This makes so much sense. Southerners do have the best food. Can I get an amen in that? Amen. Uh, okay, wow. Uh, so, but when you think about meat and potatoes, sometimes we think of friendship not like the meat and potatoes. We think of it like the gravy. And it's not the gravy. You were made by God to need it. Do you know I know that you were made by God to need it? All of us in here have a tattoo in our bodies that tells this a sign to us that we need friends. You know what it is? It's your belly button. I'm not going to show you my because that's really awkward really fast. But I want you to know. So we... The, you're, think about that, and this is sort of maybe heard before, but the fact that you have a mark on your body that says you did not come from nowhere, that's a double negative, but you came from somewhere. You came from another human being. You were made by God for relationship. That's why God says in Genesis 3, that weird thing he's saying, if you, if you follow Genesis at the beginning at all, when he's looking at creation and he makes something, he says it is good. And he makes something else. He says it is good. And he makes something else. He says it is good. But you remember the first thing God says is not good? He says it is not good for man to be alone. You are not meant to be a lone ranger. You are not meant to be Batman. Can we put it this way? We love Batman. Batman didn't have friends, right? He has servants and enemies, but no friends. Robin, maybe. But still, more like a keeps them at distance, right? You need friends, um, and you need friends for, for four reasons. Just we could say there are a lot of reasons, but there are four that I want to give you that, that I think it's interesting. If you were to read the story of David and Jonathan, that this comes out as to why you need friends. Four reasons you need friends. Here's the first: you need friends for affirmation. You need people to look at you and affirm you and say what you're doing is good. I like you. I used to say uh, with some, one of my friends, a friend is someone who laughs at your jokes. You know what I mean? You know the awkward moment where you tell a joke and the person's like, hmm, I've got to go. <laughs> a friend is someone who, who can affirm you, who looks at you and likes what they see. But number two, it's not just affirmation that you need. You also need confrontation. This was part of what Jonathan's willing to do with David, especially later on. This is part of what Nathan's willing to do with David. You, also, you not only need someone who likes you, but you need someone who lo- you need friends who love you enough to tell you when you're being an idiot. You need friends who love you enough who tell you when you're wrong, and that's the test of friendship. I'll never forget just a short illustration. I had a friend that was a real. The reason I knew he was a real friend 
was when we were in college, I told you about that bad relationship I was in, and, and when I was in college, but we were really close high school friends, but then he went to Clemson and I went here. He knew the deal. Like, he knew that I had left all of my previous friendships to go hang out with this girl, and I had completely abandoned them. I isolated myself. It was bad, bad, bad. And he had the courage to say something to me. And he sort of said through email, which was probably not the best way to say it, but he still had the courage to say, you're being an idiot. And I was pissed, so pissed, for about a year, honestly. I didn't talk to him for about a year. But do you know why he was in my wedding? Because I knew that he loved me. Do you know how I knew that he loved me? Because he was willing to say hard things to me. So you need friends that are willing to affirm you, friends that are willing to confront you, affirmation, confrontation. But you also need friends who understand you. So they like you, they love you enough to say our things, but they get you. They sort of get your personality, they get your interests, they want to understand you. And then fourth, you need friends for fellowship. Friends that love to do things with you. This is the with you. Side by side love, C.S. Lewis calls it. Where you sort of can be side by side and enjoy something together, enjoy a game together, enjoy a meal together, go play soccer together, go work out together, whatever it is. You need, you need all four of those as a human being. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image is you need all of those things. I had a friend uh, two summers ago who also loved me enough to say some hard things in my life. And uh, it was basically centered around, you know, we had, we had hung out, we had fellowship together, we had laughed together, I knew that he liked me. Uh, we had, you know, we'd gone deep together. Um, he, he, you know, I knew that he had affirmed me and my gifts, but he had to confront me. And he basically said, Sammy, I love you, but you're being a terrible husband and you're being a terrible dad. And I was pissed. But because, you see all those work together? Like he couldn't have just come out of the blue and go, like, hey, you're being a terrible husband, terrible dad. But because I knew that he had affirmed me, he had fellowshiped with me, he could confront me. And because he confronted me, I knew that he loved me as my friend. And we still are, are best friends to this day. Um, you, but you need that. You and I need that. So to David, before God gave David the kingdom, he gave him a friend. So first purpose. Second, pattern. So, but how does it happen? It's, it's one thing to say, this is what you need. And some of you are like, yes, I'm longing for this. I'm a senior and I'm lonely. That's why I come to RUFs. I'm trying to make some friends. Well, how in the world does friendship happen? This is the pattern. Now, what's interesting to know about Jonathan and David, and this is fascinating, especially for girls, is that Jonathan should have been jealous of David and have hated him. Why? Because Jonathan was the heir to the kingdom. Jonathan literally was Saul the king's son, and he knew that David was a threat to the kingdom. So in human terms, Jonathan should have hated no one more than the guy who's about to steal the kingdom from under him. But he doesn't. Instead, he does two incredibly radical things that always come with real friendship. Two radical things that he does. First, you saw it. It's weird, but he, he basically strips himself of the king's robe. And he strips himself of his armor. And he strips himself of his sword. Everything that he has that, mean, that, that, that is his, he willingly gives to David for David's good. He makes himself, here's the way to say it, he makes himself vulnerable to David. But he does something else. He doesn't just make himself vulnerable to David. He does something else. He makes a covenant with him. So it's not just this one, because some of us can do this spontaneous, oh, I love you so much if we do something generous. But then we have, we're flaky. But Jonathan wasn't flaky. Jonathan stood here. He not only did this incredible thing where he stripped himself, but he also did this thing where he covenanted. Where he made a promise that I will be with you and for you for all of my life. And he was. That is the pattern for friendship. Let me say it to you this way. And this is totally stealing from Tim Keller. Friend, real friends, good friends, always do two things. They always let you in, 
and they never let you down. That is friendship. They always, good friends always let you in, and they never let you down. Think with me for a second. First, they always let you in. Good friends, this is how friendship happens, good friends make themselves vulnerable. They open up their heart to you. They share about their struggles. They share about their sin. They share about their secrets. They share about their story. I love the way that Chris Rock says it. Um, you see it in here, in your, it's actually in your handout where he says this. He says, uh, when you meet someone for the first time, you're not meeting them. You're meeting the representative. That is so true. When you meet someone for the first time, you're not meeting them. You're meeting the representative. They've sent someone to keep you at a distance to not let you in. This is where we're all like vampires in a way. You know the deal with vampires. Vampires have to be invited in, and that's how friendship works. Friendship happens the moment we invite one another in, not to feast on our necks in some weird way, but invite one another in in order to let someone know us, right? So good friends always let you in. They make themselves vulnerable. But number two, they never let you down. Because here's the thing. Some of us are really good at not being fake. We can be really real. And I'm speaking from personal experience. We can be really genuine. We can wear our heart on our sleeves. But we are flaky as anything. And we're, we're the friend who texts you like five minutes after we're supposed to be hanging out. Oh, sorry, something came up. So it's not just that they let you in. It's that they never let you down. There's a, good friends not only make themselves vulnerable, but good friends show up. They keep their word. They let their yes be yes and their no be no. They're reliable. They're not only real, but they're reliable. Uh, part of my story, uh, you, some of you guys know this, but um, part of how I became a Christian was uh, my parents went through this really messy, hard divorce. And my mom in particular bore the burden of a lot of that. And I'll never forget that every Tuesday at 4 o'clock, without fail like clockwork, she had these two friends, Lucy and Tempe. And Lucy and Tempe, every, they were like, if you follow baseball at all, they were like her spiritual Cal Ripkins. You know Cal Ripkins thing? Like he had the record for like most games ever played in, and his motto was sort of you show up. Like that's half of the battle is showing up. These friends were like clockwork every Tuesday, 4 o'clock, showed up with my mom. How did, how, how did she know they were good friends? Not only did they pray together and cry together, but they were committed to her. They were so committed to her that they were willing to clear their schedule and say, at 4 o'clock Tuesday, I'm hanging out with you. We're going to pray together. I'm going to love on you. They were her spiritual Cal Ripkins. We need this. This is what friendship is. This is the pattern. It's not fake and flaky, but real and reliable. Good friends always let you in. They never let you down. But this brings us to the problem. And this is the problem that I hope you're already feeling. This is the problem that I feel as I even talk about this and as I studied about this and wrote this. Here's the problem, is this is not, that you and I have not been good friends. If we're being honest, most of us can say we've not been a good friend. Either we have a really hard time letting people in, or we have a really hard time we let people down. Think about it this way. Part of our problem is we're too afraid to let people in. It feels too risky to us. It feels way too risky. It feels making yourself vulnerable means I've got to leave, I've got to put myself out there. And if you've ever asked a girl out, you know what this feels like. There's a sense of we hate to put ourselves out there, but we don't just do it in opposite sex relationships. We do it in real sex relationships. Not real sex. <laughs> we do it with one another. You 
know what I'm saying. Which is why, if you watch, uh, if you watch, that's why Paul Rudd's I Love You Man is such a fascinating movie to me. Because the whole movie is about his struggle to make guy friends. Because there's this unwillingness, it feels unsafe for him to put himself out there. And that's the same with us. We're too afraid. I love the way that R.A. Dickey, when he shares his story, if you guys follow baseball, R.A. Dickey is... He's a pitcher. He used to pitch um, for the Mets. I think he pitches for the Blue Jays now. And he has this story where he shared in an interview, and he wrote a book about it, that he had been abused as a child. And he had kept that as a secret for almost all of his life. He'd been, he's married. He kept it from his wife. And he's got this great interview, and he says this in the interview. He's just being really honest about this fear. And he said this. He said it, He's talking about the abuse. And he said, it had been locked away for 23 years and had wreaked havoc on my life and the relationships I had in my life. Not only with my friends, who really weren't even my friends. He said, I didn't trust anybody. But with my wife, she, she even didn't know the darkest things about me. I had kind of conned her into marrying me almost. It's a tough admission. I loved her dearly, so I protected... Listen to what he says. So I protected who I wanted to be, but I would never let her inside. Because I always feared... Listen to what he says. Because I always feared if someone knew the real me, they would run the other way. And you feel that and I feel that. That if someone knew what I really was, that if someone knew what you really do and what you really struggle with, that they would run the other way. We have a fear of letting people in, but we also are too selfish to commit to people. We're too selfish to not let one another down. There was an article in Relevant Magazine, and it was fascinating to me. It was called uh, Generation We'll See. And she nailed this idea of what one of my students used to call FOMO, fear of missing out, that part of why you and I don't commit to one another, and especially your generation doesn't commit to one another, is your, your generation will see. You're, already, you're always looking for the best possible option because you think like, not like a servant, like Jesus calls you to be, but you think like a consumer, which means you're always looking, you're even looking at your friends, not as a servant, someone to love and be faithful to, but you look at them as a consumer, like a product. Like, do I really want to get a little hit from this person and have a little time with this person? Will that make me feel good? And so we are, we're terrified of, of committing. Here's what the author said. I thought she nailed it. Listen to what she says. She says, long ago in the days before Snapchat, BuzzFeed, and Leonardo DiCaprio, making plans and breaking them required effort, commitment, and dedication. You had to craft plans days, weeks, and months in advance, and you had to show up for them. There wasn't an easy way to break it to a friend that you couldn't make it. You would have to send a telegram, write a letter, or call a landline gasp. This, I'm sure, was both frustrating and rewarding. It was probably a hassle to make plans, but at least you knew well in advance if somebody was going to break them. Because our generation has access to everything all the time, we hate the idea of doing something we don't feel like doing. Listen to what she says. We're always waiting for something better. And a lot of times we're willing to ditch our former plans if something more exciting comes along. Instead of enjoying where we are and reaching out to those around us, we stand in a corner, shooting off texts to friends, hoping our phones will buzz and give us a good excuse to leave. Whether it's a party or an appointment or a wedding shower for a friend of a friend of a friend, it's easy to only focus on what you feel like doing when making plans. And that's what she says. But with so many options at our fingertips and ourselves seemingly at the center of it all, maybe it's time we ask ourselves what we've been missing out on. And that's so true for you and for me. That our lack of willingness to commit to one another through thick and thin cheapens our friendship instead of deepening it. Do you see that? 
That's why Donald Miller likes to say, which is one of his best quotes, where he says, the hardest lie that I've ever fought is the lie that life is a story about me, that I'm at the center of everything, and that's how I operate in this world. And when you do that, let me, let me break it to you. You're going to be alone. If you think you're the center, that means everyone else is on the periphery. And you, you're going to get to the end of your life, and you're going to be alone. Because you, you have to understand that you're not at the center. Someone else is. Jesus is, namely. So we're too afraid to let anyone in. We're too selfish to, let, to commit to people, to not let them down. But it's more than this. Part of how friendship works is forgiveness. And we're too proud to forgive. So when someone does let us down, or when we do let someone in and then they gossip about it, or when we do let someone in and our friendship is formed and then they bail, we're too proud to forgive. And Jesus says, you know what he says? It's a hard word. He says, forgive as I've forgiven, forgive others as I've forgiven you. Freely. Praise Jesus that he is the God of second chances. But woe unto us that we are the people of one chance and you're done. Because if that's how you live your life, friendship is not going to happen. Which is why Jesus tells Peter, Peter, Peter asks him, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And Jesus says, 70 times 7, or 70 times 70. And his point is, count it to 149, or whatever that is, my math meters. It's not 149. But you, my math people, can get it. I was an English person. The point is, it's endless. Because that's how Jesus forgives you. There's not a limit to his grace. There's not a limit to his mercy, and he says for us to be the same. But this is the problem, is we suck at this, right? So what's the power? What's the answer? How are we ever knowing what we know, what, what, the, what the purpose is, what the pattern is, what the problem is? How in the world are we ever going to become the kind of friends that we want to be? How in the world are we going to ever become the kind of friends that we need to be? And the answer is looking to Jesus. What's fascinating is thinking about Jonathan in light of Jesus and thinking about Jesus in light of Jonathan. Think about it for a second. It's really fascinating to me. Like Jonathan... Jesus looked at us, and instead of seeing a threat, he saw a friend. And Jesus, in the most ultimate way, didn't simply strip himself of his robe. Jesus, at the cross, dying naked, gave us his life. He didn't just go up the kingdom, he gave his life. Think about it like this. What's the most vulnerable place you could ever be in physically? It's this. And this is Jesus on the cross, and he's being vulnerable. And he's being vulnerable that you could be safe. But he's not simply being vulnerable. Jesus, if you know the story, he's in the garden, and he knows the cross is coming, and he says, Father, please, anything, anything to not die that death, because he knew the agony that it was going to be. And Jesus said... But that will be done. And Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising his shame. And I love the way that Keller says it. What was that joy? That joy was you. That joy was being friends with you. People that could never deserve his friendship. And yet people that he graciously, joyfully, freely offers it to. I love the way that J.I. Packer says it. Because it's not like he's on the cross and he doesn't know what you are. That's the thing that I love about Jesus, is I love this idea of, it's not like Jesus is on the cross and be like, wait, 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 they're that bad? 
No, Jesus on the cross, making himself vulnerable so you could be safe, showing how committed he is to you and to your good, knowing all of your sin. Every single possible sin that you've ever sinned in thought, word, and deed, Jesus knew it all, and yet that's why he gave himself. Listen to the way Packer says it. I love it. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says this. He says, there is tremendous relief. Tremendous relief. By the way, for those of you who are depressed, this is part of the answer to your depression. For those of you who are lonely, this is part of the answer to your loneliness. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing that Jesus' love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. One of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called The Iron Giant. And uh, we watch it. We have four kids, and so we watch a lot of movies. We watch a lot of Netflix. When Dad watches the kids, the kids watch Netflix. So uh, we've watched Iron Giants a lot of times. And so you know the story at all. There's a weird story where it's set in sort of the 60s in this small town. And this little boy who's being raised by a single mom, played by Jennifer, her voice is played by Jennifer Aniston. And, uh, and he doesn't really have any friends. And then this weird night, one time he's out exploring in the woods. And this iron giant literally falls from space. And it's being sort of falls in this power plant. It's being electrocuted. The boy saves his life. And they strike up this really bizarre but incredible friendship. And the whole time, you know, it's set in the 60s. So it's the height of the Cold War with Russia. And this whole time, the, the military, the U.S. military has kind of gotten some kind of readings and reports that there's this iron giant that's around this town. And so they think, surely this has got to be some kind of Russian spy. And so the U.S. military rushes into the town and is trying to interview the boy about, about this giant. And finally there's this one general who is just hell-bent on getting this giant and destroying him. And so in this kind of climactic scene, they've chased a whole army, this whole fleet of vehicles with these atomic missiles, have chased the giant into the town square. And the whole town, the giant and the boy and his family, the whole town are gathered in this square and this, this commander, this military guy, without thinking, fires the missile. And it's a scene where the whole town realizes what's just happened. Is as the missile comes back down and kills this giant, destroys this giant, it's going to destroy the whole town. And so the giant realizes this too. And the giant, without flinching, looks at the people and he looks especially at his friend, the little boy. And he flies up into space and he flies up to the very reaches of the sky And he takes the missile, and in this most beautiful moment, he pulls the missile on himself. And right before he does it, he smiles. And he's burst into thousands and thousands of pieces. And I love that because every time I watch it with my kids, I'm like, I'm crying, and I'm saying, Jesus, for the joy set before him, Jesus Jesus made himself vulnerable. Jesus was so committed to you. That he made himself vulnerable to the point of giving his life. Now here's the question. If he didn't flake out then, do you think he's going to flake out now? Because here's the thing. If you're ever going to be any, de- any kind of a decent friend, you've got to first have a friend like that. A friend who always lets you in. Jesus says, come unto me. All you who are weary, and I will give you rest. He says, there is nothing you cannot bring to me and pour out your heart to me about. But a friend who will never let you down, a friend who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Until you have a friend like that, you'll never be any any kind of decent friend. You can't. 
You're always either over need people or underserved people. Unless Jesus is your best friend, you cannot be a good friend. But when Jesus is your best friend, then you can be a good friend. Because you won't over need people and you won't underserve people. Let's pray and then we'll do a little bit of Q&A. <clears throat> um, Lord, I, I pray that for myself and I pray that uh, for my friends. I pray that, that you would be... Um, what, you, what we sing about, that you are the friend of sinners, Lord. That you are the one who pursued us when we wanted nothing to do with you. That you are the one who continues to pursue us like good friends do, even when we are being stubborn and proud, and even when we are wanting to give ourselves over to a sin. And yet, Lord, you are the friend of sinners. You are the lover of our soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. You, our Savior, make us whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. You are with us to the end. And Lord, I pray as that truth sinks into our hearts, that you would enable us to, to make deep, incredible friendships here. Lord, we need that. We long for that. But we need your grace to do it. I pray these things with Christ in your name. Amen. So part of what we're doing is, um, and I think, I don't know if we flashed it or not, but part of what we're doing is we're trying to do a little Q&A, um, especially as we get into dating and um, dating and marriage and sex and singleness. And so let me just check and see if we have any questions for the night. And if not, we'll be done. Looks like we have a couple. Uh, this is a good one. How close is too close for guys and girls to be as just friends? Um, you know, a lot of you who know me kind of know that I'm, I'm the guy that I, I love for RUF. Um, I think guys and girls can, can be friends. I don't know if you've ever seen When Harry Met Sally, which is a classic uh, rom, rom-com. Uh, but, you know, that movie sort of says guys and girls can't ever be friends because the guy's always romantically interested in the girl. I don't necessarily buy that. Um, I think part of, part of who God is is he loves diversity. And I think part of what is healthy about healthy, appropriate guy-girl friendship is it represents the diversity that God loves. Male and female were created in his image. But with that in mind, let me say this. It would be weird if your best friend is a guy and you spend tons and tons and tons of isolated time together. Let me say something else. Because that's the person you need to marry. And sometimes it gets weird because I know we live in a culture that doesn't say marry your best friend. But let me give you a spoiler alert. That's a big part of what I'm going to say about dating and marriage is you need to date and marry your best friend. Because marriage, we're going to say this, C.S. Lewis says marriage is face-to-face love, but it's also side-by-side love. And Lewis, in this great way, says it's way, way harder to go from face-to-face love, where we're all about each other and we're super, we think each other's super hot, um, <laughs> to side-by-side love. It's way easier to go from, to, to be, let me say it this way. It's way harder to you're attracted to someone, you're not friends with them, to become friends with them. It's way easier when you're already friends with someone, you know them, you know their story, to be attracted to them. And our culture is so about physical attraction that it just gets weird. So that's what I'll say. Uh, that probably didn't answer a ton, but... All right, here's the second one. Um, not everyone in our life uh, we can treat like Jonathan and David treat each other. How do we treat just surface RUF friends that will not be in our lives forever with the same covenantal love? That's a fair question. Part of what we're talking about is uh, the part of what it means to belong to the church. You know, we say in RUF that the church is not a place, it's a people. That if you're a Christian, you, you don't go to church, you are the church. Inevitably, when you think about that, that means we're all brothers and sisters. 
Which means we have to learn to love people we don't like. And if you're not learning, let me say it to you this way. If you're not learning to love people you don't like, you're not following Jesus. If you only ever hang out with people that are like you, you're not following Jesus. Because I would say, we, you know, I say we and Jesus, that doesn't sound right, but Jesus and us have a lot not in common. And there are a lot of things about us that he couldn't like. And yet he moves toward us, always. But with that in mind, you're not going to be best friends with everybody. Uh, Jesus, if you look in the gospel, seems to be particularly close to 12 disciples. And of those 12 disciples, he seems to be particularly close to three. And of those three, he seemed to be best friends with one. That was Jesus. Does that mean he didn't love not only the other 12 disciples, but the other 72 disciples? You can ask Jesus that. I think, he, I think he did. Does that mean, it just means somehow in God's design, being be, you can't be best friends with everybody. Being best friends is good. Um, and, and that's sort of what I'll say about that. I'll stop there. One more. Um, isn't it inevitable that you will let your friends down? So how can you still be a good friend? Um, yes. If you know yourself, then you know you're going to let your friends down. And if your friends know themselves, then they know that they're, they're going to let you down and you're going to let them down. This is what I'm talking about. That You cannot, let me say it again, I said it. You cannot, I really believe this with all my heart. You cannot be a good friend unless Jesus is your best friend. Because Jesus is the only one who always lets you in. Always, always, always. There's nothing you can't say to him. There's nothing that he won't let you into about himself. But then two, he's the only one that will never let you down. And when you can understand that Jesus alone has that place in your life, then you can have a, a realistic view of friendship. Where I said it, I'm going to say it again. Where you don't overneed people. You don't try to make people Jesus. But you also don't underserve people. Where you pretend like you're just a selfish, selfish, selfish person that doesn't give yourself to your friends. Um, let me stop there.